water started flowing on March 12, 1868. The men who had spent months digging and hauling dirt and rock must have watched with eager anticipation as a steady stream of water left the Salt River and moved down the channel. Perhaps no one was more eager than Jack Swilling. This had been his idea, after all. The ex-Confederate soldier had arrived in Wickenburg the previous year and sold some of the men there on the project. His idea was a simple one. Build a canal to help irrigate the hot valley floor along the Salt River, then sell crops to the miners in Wickenburg and the even closer army post at Fort McDowell. For months, the 15 men had toiled and now were reaping the reward as water ran through what was affectionately nicknamed Swilling's Ditch. His vision paid off. In just four years, there were 8,000 acres of irrigated land being used to grow barley, wheat, corn, beans, and sweet potatoes, not to mention the grapevines and fruit trees. Except it wasn't really Swilling's idea. Sure, he had seen the possibility of selling crops to the closest settlements always in need of supplies, but the idea to irrigate near what would one day be downtown Phoenix was hardly original. In fact, Swilling's Ditch was not a new canal at all. The men had simply cleaned out and restored a canal that possibly dated back as far as 1,400 years. The original builders were long gone, but their achievements have inspired generations of new Arizonans from Swilling to the present day. And this is their story. I'm your host, David Rickhausen, and you're listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 4, The First Arizonans. To put it mildly, the question of how and when humans first enter North America is a confusing, convoluted, controversial quagmire that we are going to do our level best not to get sucked into. But in short, for the latter half of the 20th century, the prevailing thought was the so-called Clovis First Theory. This theory stated that a group known as the Clovis Culture, named for a dig site near Clovis, New Mexico, where it was first described in the 1930s, entered North America via a land bridge across the Bering Strait from Asia following big game roughly 13,500 years ago. Eventually, melting ice opened a passage down south and they moved in to inhabit the Americas. The Clovis are known for using a distinctive fluted spear point that archaeologists have found pretty much everywhere across the continent. This led to the theory that they were the first group to arrive and spread themselves out, taking these spear points with them. These are the same spear points that did in our poor mammoth friend from last week's episode, by the way. However, in the last few decades, the evidence has been mounting that the Clovis were simply the new kids in town. Evidence from a variety of sites, most importantly Monteverde in Chile, show evidence of human habitation from at least 14,500 years ago. Other sites across North and South America seem to indicate that human beings were here, and by here I mean established and not just entering, some 20,000 years ago. Some even contend that humans could have come across from the Old World as far back as 40,000 years ago. And still others say the whole followed the mammoth across the ice theory doesn't hold up either. They contend that a more realistic view is that ancient peoples utilized what they term the Kelp Highway. In this version, early humans in boats followed the shoreline and island coast following fish and other marine edibles up the east side of Asia and down the west side of the Americas. This also helps explain how people seemingly got to the coastline of Chile before the interior of North America. And just for fun, I will point out that in 2017, a group of researchers published an article in the journal Nature 
claiming evidence of hominid habitation in California going back as far as 140,000 years ago. Now, these would not have been modern humans, but some variant of Neanderthal or Denisovan. This claim relies on whether you believe the researchers that mastodon bones discovered near San Diego were broken by said hominids using nearby rounded rocks, or whether they were naturally broken over time, so it remains a highly controversial claim. And of course, all this ignores the stories that Arizona's Amerindian tribes tell about how their ancestors first came to be here, which should not be discounted out of hand. Alright, I think it's time we pulled our boots out of that particular bog, and once again set foot on the slightly more solid ground on what we know about the earliest inhabitants of Arizona. Now, I'm going to tread extremely lightly in this episode, as you can add archaeologists and anthropologists to the growing list of things that I am not. But it is safe to say that by 8,000 years ago, humans were living in Arizona, working and dying, and had been for some time. Now, in school, when you learned about the rise of modern man, the story always went something like this. Man was originally hunter-gatherer, moving in small bands to follow prey and edible plants. Then we discovered agriculture, settled down, and began domesticating pigs, cows, sheep, and the like. This led us to have cities, eventually complex city-states, empires, industrial revolutions, automobiles, microwavable popcorn, Michael Bay films, and podcasts. But we now know that the pivot point between hunter-gatherer societies and agrarian societies, which lead eventually to automobiles, microwavable popcorn, and Michael Bay films and podcasts, is not as cut and dry as everyone stopped moving around one day. It appears that many cultures were both hunter-gatherers and proto-agriculturalists, still moving around but stopping for seasons to tend to plants. Going back to Swilling's Ditch and how old an idea it was, there is evidence of canal building in the Tucson area going back as far as 2000 BC. We don't know much about the earliest Arizonans, mainly due to this mobile lifestyle and a lack of artifacts that would survive the test of time. This period, called the Archaic, ends roughly about 200 AD when we start to see the rise of civilizations that are more sedentary and produce everyone's favorite archaeological artifact, pottery. When you read about the ancient peoples who used to live here, there are three main distinctions that must be talked about. The Ancestral Puebloan, the Mogollon, and the Hohokam. A couple caveats with this. I will be talking about the Ancestral Puebloan, the Mogollon, and the Hohokam, but it's best to keep in mind that these are modern distinctions we make based on conceived cultural similarities among different sites. Even among these groups, there are subsets and distinct traditions the TV lover in me is finding it very hard not to call them spin-offs. But for simplicity and narrative reasons, I'm going to stick with these larger groups, who I'm now personally calling Arizona's Big Three. The other caveat is these are by no means the names they call themselves, but labels appended by researchers to describe these cultures. And that naming system isn't as static as you would believe. The Ancestral Puebloan, for example, are the group that used to be commonly referred to as the Anasazi, However, modern Puebloan peoples object to the term Anasazi, mainly because it's a Navajo word that can be translated as ancient enemy or enemy of the ancestors. But just to muddy already murky waters, one expert told me that some Navajo claim descent from the ancestral Puebloans and have no problem with the term. In fact, they prefer it. I'm going to use this as a convenient segue to say that my rule of thumb for what names I will use for the various peoples we will encounter going forward will be to go with what the majority of my sources use. 
This will become especially important as we move into the Spanish period, and they give all sorts of names to the people they encounter, which don't actually align with what those people call themselves. I've always tried to point out if there are multiple identifiers for tribes we find, and if names are anachronistic, but for the sake of keeping things straight, I might use Pima and Papago instead of Akamel and Tejono Odom if my sources do. Alright, with those caveats out of the way, let's dive into the big three. In the greater Four Corners region of Arizona, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, we find the Ancestral Puebloan peoples. I spoke with Dr. Scott Ortman, an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Colorado Boulder, who has spent a good amount of time researching the Ancestral Puebloan sites for a basic narrative of what we know about this culture. The oldest traditions are called the basket maker complexes, mainly because pottery wasn't a thing yet, so we have people making baskets to store things. During the various basket maker phases, which started roughly 3,000 to 2,500 years ago, these people started living year-round in shallow pit houses, where we find charred maize kernels and fragments. They were growing maize and squash, and cooked by lining their baskets with pine pitch and then using water and hot stones to boil the maize. But in 400 AD, we see a game changer. People start making pottery. At first, these are simple utilitarian vessels made from natural clays that fire to a brown color. But later on, they start mining different clays, especially a shale that produces gray pottery. But this isn't just art for art's sake. Because with cooking pottery, we have a new ingredient. Beans. Now, that might not sound like much to modern ears, but the introductions of beans is actually a really big deal. Mainly because with maize, squash, and now beans, you have all the essential nutrients to live. By cultivating all three, you can now go all in on agriculture and not rely on hunting and gathering to, you know, survive. Also, with pottery, you can boil beans for a long time, which means you can make soft foods that small children can easily consume. And since children could now be weaned earlier, women were able to have more offspring during their childbearing years. This led to a veritable population explosion. According to Dr. Ortman, between 500 and 1000 AD, we see growth rates of 1-2% to per year, which is enough to double the population in 35 years. That's faster than the fastest growing cultures today. And this leads to what is known as the Pueblo I period, where we start to see people coming together in agricultural settlements. This is when you start to see what you think of when you hear Pueblo, large, multi-story structures made out of stone, adobe mud, and timber. Whereas before people lived in homes directly next to their fields, now they are living in a settlement and going to work their field. And this is where we start to see public infrastructure, such as plazas and the building of great kivas, or round subterranean religious spaces. And, as Dr. Orman pointed out, this demonstrates a level of social organization, because rules had to be in place that outlined that such and such person had rights to cultivate a certain piece of land, even though they were no longer living on it. By the time the Pueblo II period starts around 900 AD, we have ancestral Puebloan settlements everywhere between Las Vegas, Nevada, and Las Vegas, New Mexico. Now, these were still small villages of maybe 100 people, but we also see the rise of the regional center in Chaco Canyon, New Mexico. Chaco Canyon is an impressive array of multi-story settlements, grand kivas, and plazas. Along the canyon, some sites contain up to nearly 700 rooms that show all the signs of central planning. 
We see things here such as the great houses and grand kivas being symmetrical and divided on an east-west line. At Pueblo Bonito in Chaco Canyon, the settlement can be divided by a similar line due to a wall, and we find grand kivas on either side. These are just some of the symmetrical eccentricities that show someone was putting a lot of thought into how these places were laid out. In Dr. Ortman's opinion, Chaco Canyon was probably the seat of regional management and social stratification. The people living at Chaco Canyon appear to have been some form of bigwigs that were cared for by the greater population. They appear to have been healthier and had more possessions. Outlying settlements, some 150 of them discovered so far, were connected by a massive system of roads. One fun note is that the roads, unlike today's major highways, didn't seem to care much for going around difficult topography. Some of these roads don't appear to have gone anywhere either. They radiated out from Chaco Canyon and then sort of ended. Other times, there were multiple roads heading in roughly the same direction. All this has led to theories about these roads being more ceremonial in nature rather than for trade or transportation, though it is obvious that these people did conduct trade. We see evidence of trade from Mesoamerica, as these people had macaws, copper bells, and even cacao beans coming up from Mexico. From what we can gather, the main social tension of the time was from groups either buying into Chaco Canyon or resisting it. Chaco Canyon is where we also see evidence from modern Puebloan oral traditions, Dr. Orman told me. Now, this regional center came crashing down in the mid-1100s AD for reasons that we can only guess at. Dr. Orman's guess, with some oral history to support it, is that the Chaco leaders built their supremacy on the claim that they could bring rain. A few decades of bad drought during this period undercut this claim, and the whole system went down with it. It's impossible to know for sure without a time machine, but the next century or so was spent dealing with the fallout from the collapse of Chaco Canyon. A new regional center popped up near Aztec, New Mexico, though researchers still debate how effective it was. Village sizes during this Pueblo III phase increased to roughly 500 people per Pueblo, but we also see a lot of signs of competition between settlements, evidence of violent clashes, and a lot of defensive architecture. This is the period that produced the grand cliffside dwellings that so intrigue us today at places such as Mesa Verde in Colorado. In the late 1200s AD, Perhaps with the help from yet another bad drought, this system too was abandoned. There was mass migration south from the area, and places such as Mesa Verde were abandoned altogether. In the 1300s, the modern Hopi tribe begins living on their mesas in northeastern Arizona, in large communities with up to 3,000 people. And according to Dr. Ortman, we now see the Puebloan societal structure that is more communal, egalitarian, and generous, Everything is a lot more peaceful and stable than the previous era. These are the Pueblo traditions that the Spanish will run into in the mid-1500s. And this actually is an interesting development from an anthropological point of view. Dr. Orban raises the point that up to the Chaco Canyon period, the ancestral Puebloan were on the same trajectory as other ancient civilizations in China, the Fertile Crescent, and South America. That is, that their settlements were getting larger with increasing social stratification. But following Chaco, that hierarchy was dismantled. Communities continued to increase in size, but without much of the breaking into classes that we see elsewhere in the world. Instead, we have the modern Puebloan values of communal, generous living. And how they made that leap, 
like much of their culture, remains an open and intriguing question. As I said, the ancestral Puebloan tradition held sway over the greater Four Corners area, stretching into the Colorado and Little Colorado drainage areas in Arizona. Further south, in the high transitional zone and white mountains of eastern Arizona, we find the next of the big three, the Mogollon culture. Like most of the ancient peoples, what defines a Mogollon is all the evidence that we have, namely pottery, architecture, and burial practices. They are named for the Mogollon Mountains of New Mexico, themselves named for an early 18th century Spanish governor. However, I'm from Arizona where we pronounce it Mogollon, like the Mogollon Rim, so I'm going to go ahead and apologize in advance if you hear me slip a little bit and do some weird hybrid of Mogollon and Mogollon. But this tradition spread up and down the western part of New Mexico, contacting the ancestral Puebloans in the north and spreading south into modern-day Mexico. In the west, groups made it into eastern Arizona, living in and along the White Mountains and that transitional zone between the Sonoran Desert and the Colorado Plateau. According to Dr. Barbara Roth at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, though we know of farming happening in the area occupied by the Mogollon as far back as 2000 BC, it's only around the 2nd century AD that we see this distinct culture. Dr. Roth, who chaired UNLV's Department of Anthropology and spent a decade excavating Mogollon sites, said for the first few centuries these people were semi-nomadic, meaning they moved around during the warmer months, but probably returned to established pit houses during the winter. And their pit houses are particular in that they are deeper than those found among other groups, being excavated about one to one and a half meters into the ground. They are also rectangular with lateral entranceways, there are no wing walls or antechambers that other cultures have. Dr. Roth said this semi-nomadic existence was necessary because where they chose to settle was always somewhat risky for subsistence agriculture. Those who settled in the mountains, like the majority in Arizona, were at higher elevations with poor soil. So they always had to hunt and forage to supplement their diet, harvesting wild plants when they were in season, such as gathering pinion pine nuts in the fall. They also began to implement some farming techniques. The Mimbrus Mogollon, one of those subsets I talked about earlier who lived in the Mimbrus Valley of the Upper Gila River, utilized terraces and retention walls to hold what moisture and good soil they could. And once more permanent settlements became the norm, those living at the higher elevations engaged in a good amount of trade with other settlements to get what they needed. It's around 500 to 700 AD that we see more permanent settlements beginning to happen, perhaps in part due to a new strain of maize that was coming north out of Mexico in the 6th and 7th centuries AD, according to Dr. Roth. Like the ancestral Puebloan, more settlements also means a rise in the making of pottery. The telltale ceramics of the Mogollon are brown pots for cooking and red-on-brown painted pots for storing food. The members Mogollon are distinctive because their pottery was elaborate black-on-white vessels that were painted with pictures of animals, people, and everyday scenes, something unique to them. These people are also using those great subterranean kivas for religious purposes. It's between 1000 and 1200 AD, and more toward the end of that period in the higher elevation settlements in places like Arizona, that the Mogollon also began to build pueblos. Dr. Roth said it's an idea they probably adapted from their ancestral Puebloan neighbors, though the Mogollon will never quite get as good at it. 
The Moyon are using river rock and other materials that aren't quite up to par with what the folks up at Chaco Canyon were using. And unlike the meticulous planning of the ancestral Puebloans, the Mogollon tended to be a little more flexible with their Pueblo structure. Excavation of Mogollon sites showed that they would add rooms and tear them down to suit their current needs without a discernible pattern or plan, Dr. Roth said. It's also during this switch to Pueblos that we see them switching to large plazas and abandoning great kivas as the center of ceremonial life. What we know of their society is extremely limited, but we see some intriguing things. The Mimbres Mogollon, for example, bury their dead underneath the floor. Over their head, they would place a bowl made for this very purpose. And the bowl would have a kill hole or a large chunk broken out of the bottom before being placed in the grave. The society also appears to have been matrilineal, though the males are the ones who are buried in the religious paraphernalia. Dr. Roth recounted at one dig in the Mimbres Valley, they uncovered the body of a male who was clearly not from the area, which indicates that he had moved in to join his wife and mother-in-law's family. An intermarriage with others was not that uncommon, especially in the 1300s when many ancestral Puebloans moved south as they abandoned the cliff dwellings and Pueblos in the Four Corners region. How the Mogollon integrated these newcomers varies site by site. At one site called Point of Pines, north of Safford, there is a Mogollon Pueblo that has a small room block that is distinctly ancestral Puebloan, suggesting that the group lived at least somewhat separately and did not integrate. Other sites show more of true integration with adaptations from both cultures. Still, we never see the type of violence and intersettlemental conflict that the ancestral Puebloans went through following the collapse of Chaco Canyon which makes the question of why the Mogollon eventually abandoned these sites more intriguing. Between 1450 and 1500, we see the Mogollon leaving their pueblos. There are several possible explanations that researchers have proposed, including overworking the environment, diseases, though there is a lack of mass burials, raids by other groups, or social stresses that we can only guess at. Either way, by the time the Spanish arrived on scene, the Mogollon, whoever they were, had moved on. And that brings us to the big one. If you grew up in Arizona, this was the people you learned about at school. We are talking, of course, about the Hohokam. Now, I've heard several ways to pronounce Hohokam, and everyone seems to have their preferred way, but Hohokam seems to be the pronunciation of those who studied this ancient civilization, so that is what I'm going to go with. Just please bear with me if I slip and say Hohokam, like I learned in fourth grade. Old habits and all that. Like the two other cultures we talked about so far, we see evidence for people living in what would be the Hohokam area starting as early as 2000 BC and growing those old favorite staples of maize, beans, and squash. Also pumpkins, just to vary things up a bit. And funny enough, given the subtle rivalry now between the two cities, it appears that the development of what would eventually become the Hohokam culture started along the Santa Cruz River Basin before moving north towards the Gila and Salt Rivers meaning that civilization, as it were, actually went north from Tucson to Phoenix. These people were living in small, impermanent, circular housing similar to a wiki-up, and were still moving with the seasons to gather and cultivate what resources they could. Dr. Kathy Henderson, a senior archaeologist with Desert Archaeology, Inc., and principal investigator on numerous digs in the Phoenix area, said that we start seeing occupation along the Salt River between 100 and 500 AD, 
a time frame known as the Red Mountain Period. These settlements are small pit houses, more shallow than the Mogollon ones, sitting along the river's floodplain. It's towards the end of this period, or around 500 AD, that we start seeing the first villages, or groups of houses built around a central plaza. Now, these villages would continue to grow and be occupied throughout the entire Hohokam history as we understand it today, making them inhabited for nearly an entire millennium. And in case you're wondering, this is also when we start seeing the distinctive Hohokam pottery, which is a red-on-buff style. It's around 800 AD that we also start seeing these settlements build ball courts. Now, researchers have recorded more than 200 of these courts across more than 160 sites. They are located across the southern part of Arizona and stretch as far north as the upper Verde River Valley. There are even a dozen or so found around Flagstaff, though these were built later and were most likely borrowed from the Hohokam by the people living in that area. These ball courts are oval depressions in the ground that range between 60 and 250 feet long and 30 to 90 feet wide. Some are dug as far as 9 feet into the ground. These could easily allow hundreds of spectators, with the largest estimated to have accommodated up to 700 people. And how, you may ask, do we know that these were ball courts? Well, the answer is, elegant in its simplicity, they look like ball courts. Specifically, they look like the ball courts the Spanish encountered in Mexico during the 16th century with smooth, sometimes plastered floors and defined entrances and exits. The people in Mesoamerica were playing some sort of ball game since at least 1200 BC, and the Odom peoples of southern Arizona, who claimed descent from the Hohokam, were also playing well into historical times. There is also the fact that we have found paddles and balls. Among the small collection of artifacts at Mesa Grande, a Hohokam site that's now tucked among development in northwestern Mesa, there is a stone paddle that is similar to ones found in Mexico, and this is just one that has been discovered during the last century or so. Even more importantly, we have the balls. Yes, believe it or not, we have the actual rubber balls the Hohokam would have played with. Now, caveat, we don't have many. The best estimate I can find is around four made from actual rubber, with others made from resin or other materials. Now, this was not the exact ball game of the Mesoamericans, where teams would try to knock the ball through the stone rings. The Hohokam ball carts are missing those. But it was more likely a simpler version, where teams would pass the ball to each other without letting it touch the ground and without touching it with their hands. Figurines from the Hohokam show male figures wearing turban-like head coverings and padding on their upper arms that could indicate the outfit the ball players may have worn, much like similar outfits used further south in Mexico. Now, it's probably no surprise that humans of all times have played sports, but the ball courts are also suspected of having a greater purpose. If the Odom games are any indication, then the Hohokam ball courts were also central places of gathering for trade, religious rituals, festivals, and other important events. The ball courts themselves are distributed usually among the larger communities, one source uses the analogy of county seats, where people gather for fairs and public buildings, such as courthouses. During our conversation, Dr. Henderson described the ball courts as a location for the larger regional system of trade and exchange. The ball courts were the center hubs for hundreds of years, but between about 1050 and 1100 AD, we see them fall out of favor. 
Henderson described the period of roughly 1070 to 1150 as kind of murky when it comes to hard archaeological evidence, but there is a distinct change in Hohokam society. This time, known as the Classic Period, is when the organization of settlements changes and we start to see adobe-walled compounds and platform mounds. Platform mounds are just what their name implies, great mounds made of filled earth. More than 120 sites with platform mounds have been identified, including Pueblo Grande and Mesa Grande in the Phoenix area. These mounds are anywhere between 2 and 12 feet high, using up to 500,000 cubic feet of earth. On top of them we find rooms, numbering either from a single space to a couple dozen. And access to these rooms on the mound appear to have been strictly limited, with their own walls and possibly guardhouses. And remember, these mounds are already inside of adobe walls surrounding the entire settlement. The reason behind the transition to making platform mounds is still a hotly debated question among Hohokam researchers, with theories ranging to that they were the residences of the elites, or were spaces reserved for religious ceremonies, or were places for the control of trade and irrigation, or maybe a little bit of each. It's during this time also that we see the Hohokam move away from cremation of their dead to more internments. The population of the Salt and Gila River basins probably reached their peak about 1200 or 1250 AD, according to Henderson. Now, I've seen different figures ranging from 40,000 to 80,000 across all Hohokam sites during this period, and even that might be lowballing the total population. And this growth is possible thanks to something else that sets the Hohokam apart from other societies irrigation. Quite simply, the Hohokam were master canal builders particularly in the Salt and Gila River basins. Their extensive canal networks were the largest in pre-Columbian North America, and they've had plenty of practice with it. As I said, we found evidence for canals in the Santa Cruz River Basin as early as 2000 BC. So by the time that the first canals start popping up along the Salt and Gila Rivers, sometime in the 1st to 3rd centuries AD, the Hohokam knew what they were doing. In the Phoenix area alone, when the 14 irrigation networks are taken together, the estimated length is 300 miles of canals providing water for 400 square miles of farmland and settlements. The Lehigh Irrigation Community in what is now Mesa has 21 miles of trunk-line canals for 14,000 acres of fields. In Casa Grande, we also find 21 miles of canals contributing to 15,000 acres of fields. And as amazing as this sounds, the major canal systems were built all at once. There was no extending of the system slowly as the population grew. As Henderson put it, they had to know where they wanted the system to end and dug out to that point. We are also talking some high-grade engineering here. With literally millennia of practice and a deep understanding of the topography around them, these canals have a drop of 1 to 2 feet every mile. And that's pretty much the sweet spot for keeping water flowing slow enough to not erode the canal, while fast enough to avoid the buildup of sediments. The canals also start to taper in size as they go further out from the headgate, in order to keep the water flowing at a constant rate despite losses to evaporation, seepage, and usage along the entire length. And keep in mind, these are not small drainage ditches we are talking about. A canal excavated at the north end of Dobson Road, where it meets the Loop 202 freeway in Mesa, was 15 feet deep and 45 feet wide. These were massive, masterfully engineered marvels we are talking about. 
In fact, before the damming of the Salt River and the beginning of the Salt River project, most of the original canals in the valley, including Swilling's Ditch, simply followed the old Hohokam canals because they were so well laid out. Not bad for people using only baskets, digging sticks, and cultural know-how. While impressive on their own, this system also tells us much about the organization of the Hohokam. As Henderson explained, just to build this canal system, you have to have the commitment of many individuals to excavate it. Beyond that, you have to have some organization in place to maintain the canals. Finally, there has to be someone or a group of people to coordinate when people draw from the canal and, in the spirit of true human nature, resolve conflicts among farming families. This also ties into the Hohokam having concepts of land ownership and land tenure, as people had rights to both plots and water. Only in the last 10 to 15 years have we really begun to understand the true scale of irrigation, Henderson explained. Around 1250 AD, however, we start to see population numbers decrease. People began coalescing into fewer sites, along with more people moving south. Between 1450 and 1500 AD, much of the Phoenix Basin area is completely abandoned, though the Hohokam still have a presence along the Gila River. It's during these later periods that the Hohokam build the Great House, or La Casa Grande. Though it's the only one left standing today, we know of at least eight or nine others that existed. Father Kino in the late 17th century would write that the natives around Casa Grande told him about more such structures to the west, north, and east. Henderson said that Casa Grande is really the exception when it comes to Hohokam architecture, though the largest communities had them, including Pueblo Grande in Phoenix. The large four-story structure that makes up Casa Grande is thought to have served basically the same purpose as the platform mounds, but may have also included an astronomical component. Certain slots and holes in the structure line up pretty well with the summer and winter solstice. The reason behind the population movements in the 15th and 16th centuries, much like those with the Mogollon and the ancestral Puebloan, is still something of an open question. In the case of the Hohokam, it's possible that flooding along the Salt River may have contributed to their movement away from the Phoenix Basin. This may sound strange to those of us who grew up in the age of the dams where the salt is barely a river most of the year, but in prehistory and well into historical times, the salt could be a pretty harsh place to farm alongside. Henderson said one of the largest canals coming out of Pueblo Grande was apparently wiped out by a large flood sometime between 1380 and 1400 AD. We also don't know how much immigration might fit into this picture, as the ancestral Puebloans and the Mogollon were moving in similar directions and encountered the Hohokam. It used to be very much in vogue to talk about these three civilizations in terms of the great mystery of their disappearance. Where did they go? What happened to them? Why did they quote-unquote disappear? I will hope that you will notice, however, that they never quote-unquote disappeared at all. While there are a good amount of questions that we simply don't know about all these people, that doesn't mean they vanished in some rapture-like event. As I've noted several times, many modern tribes claim descent from the ancestral Puebloan, the Mogollon, and the Hohokam and we can see it in their oral traditions, as well as the architecture of the modern Puebloan people, and in the fact that the natives the Spanish would encounter along the Gila were practicing irrigation. 
So the abandonment of places such as Mesa Verde or Pueblo Grande can be described as more being akin to an Old West ghost town. When we see those, we don't question why the cowboys and miners disappeared. The inhabitants simply moved on toward better prospects. And the consolidation into fewer, larger settlements shouldn't be that surprising either. After all, haven't we been talking for years about the slow attrition of small-town America as people gravitate towards larger cities? The only real shame is that we don't have enough information to give the 1,000-year time frame of these people, the first Arizonans, the time and attention they really deserve. But join me next week as we move from prehistory into history and discuss how a black African slave may have the distinction of calling himself the first person from the old world to walk into Arizona. Special thanks this week go out to Drs. Scott Ortman, Barbara Roth, and Kathy Henderson for taking the time to walk me through what we know about the ancestral Puebloan, Mogollon, and Hohokam. I'm your host, David Rickhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.